hello and welcome to Farm Buds, compounding professional narratives with student perspectives. I'm Sierra. And I'm Liz. Today we are joined by Dr. Laura Shane McWhorter, Professor Emeritus at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy. Liz was unable to make it today, so it's just me and my friend, Dr. Shane McWhorter. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here today. So I guess I will start us off with why pharmacy? That is a really great question. You know, um, and one of the things that I have explained to students is that I took a very circuitous route to get to pharmacy. But um, at a very young age, I had a degree in psychology and chemistry and a master's in biology and chemistry and didn't work uh, for several years. But instead, I was traveling overseas actually with my first husband and had a couple of kids overseas and uh, taught college biology through the University of Maryland. But then coming back, I needed something that was a more marketable degree. Mm -hmm. And so I looked around and one of my sisters was a pharmacist. And in talking to different individuals, I knew that I could certainly use my background in biochemistry and in psychology and blend that together to come up with a marketable degree, which was pharmacy. So that's basically how I got here. The, the thing about pharmacy then was that it was very different, and this was in, in the 80s. And once I got into pharmacy school, I was in the bachelor's program. And so I completed that, but, but towards the end of that particular degree, I really had fallen in love with pharmacology and therapeutics. And at that time, one of the options was to do a post-baccalaureate PharmD degree. And so I was sold and I did that. And then uh, after that, I did uh, a residency as, as well. Can you explain a little bit about how the educational training for pharmacists has changed since um, you went to school and did the bachelor's and the post-bac? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, one of the things that most people did in the 80s was to complete a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy. But an emerging option at that point was to do the, the Doctor of Pharmacy and then potentially a, uh, a residency after the, the PharmD degree. So uh, one of the things that I had noted was that um, the PharmD degree would actually provide more in-depth training than was available. And part of it was that just going to school at, at that time, I just really became involved and enamored, if you will, of um, just learning as much as I could and trying to use this information to really be able to, to help um, patients, for instance. Yeah, that's really great. Um, it's really interesting how you're um, how your excitement for patient care led you to seek that additional training. I think that's really cool. Um, and I guess we will move on to what does a day in your professional life look like? 
Sure. Um, you know, the, the thing is that um, what I do currently, and this is because of COVID, mm-hmm. I still work by telehealth. And I work with underserved patients at a federally qualified community health center. So uh, because I'm a certified diabetes care and education specialist, um, I help to manage uh, in a collaborative practice patients with diabetes with um, other providers at one of these um, federally qualified community health uh, centers. So basically, my day starts out actually not on the day that I work. It starts out before because I have to prepare Uh, and look through the charts and look through all of the labs and all of the information on patients and really be able to see what it is that I I need to do. And patients are referred to me by providers in the clinic. So what I do then is uh, with each patient, I will do a needs assessment, uh, knowing that potentially there will be several follow-up appointments with those individuals. But I try and um, address the things that need um that are more most um, urgent for that particular day and uh, talk to the patient and then provide individualized patient education. And then sometimes it involves um, going back to the provider and discussing some things, some options, and then um, follow up, follow up, follow up. And the intent is to try and help these individuals to be able to to manage not only diabetes, but its comorbidities of hypertension and hyperlipidemia and some other associated uh, comorbidities. Um, You mentioned that you work under a collaborative practice agreement. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is and what some of the terms of that would be? Yeah, collaborative practice agreement is actually something that is in in the Pharmacy Practice Act in uh, Utah. And so an individual pharmacist may enter into this collaboration with providers in the clinic to be able to choose medications, change medications, do do different things such as um, uh, obtain labs and uh, do different things to really be able to help manage a patient's medications. Um, Because I am old-fashioned, I do tend to really discuss a lot of these things with with the physicians with whom I work Uh, because sometimes I feel like Um, In some cases, this may involve trying to provide uh, evidence-based information to be able to make some of the the different recommendations that that may be made. Well, it's great that you're able to work with the providers as well and really be a whole healthcare team for your patients. Absolutely. Do you feel like uh, the working relationship between pharmacists and providers is uh, beneficial? Um, do you feel like you're well integrated into the team? Absolutely. And I think one of the the best um, reasons for that is because of the training at University of Utah where we're involved with an academic medical center. And many of the providers that are out there in the community actually have trained here. And so they're used to that practice model of working with 
other individuals from different uh, professions to be able to provide interprofessional care. Yeah, that's great. And then I think we hit on this a little bit, um, but do you want to elaborate a little more on your primary responsibilities? Um, is there anything we didn't cover um, in your day? Yeah, um, I think the main thing is to come up with some sort of therapeutic plan, some sort of um, uh, just overall way for the patient to be able to be empowered, to be able to best manage their um, their individual situations. Um, the thing about this is that uh, it varies patient by patient. Some patients are very willing to make changes. Others, we have to use motivational interviewing to try and get them to a point to where um, they will see the benefit of the reason for some of these particular suggestions or recommendations. And one of the things is that it's so very important to meet a patient where they are because each individual is different. And they're coming in with different experiences, different backgrounds, different um, sorts of uh, degrees of, of knowledge base. And so we have to meet them where they are to try and help them make those changes. But we want to empower them to be able to do this. One of um, my big takeaways while I've been in pharmacy school is we hear over and over again, the best drug therapy is the drug therapy that the patient is going to take and um, whether that means taking the patient's personal preferences into account or, um, of course, insurance and reimbursement as well. So it's great that you were able to hit on that. Yeah, and as I, I have uh, one dear colleague that says, medications work if patients take them. <laughs> and That's so, a good point. Yes, yeah, so part of our job is to help our patients see the benefit in doing that. And if I'm being honest, I take Zyrtec for my allergies and I have my little pill box and I fill it up like five weeks at a time. And I filled it up for the last time 10 weeks ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, yeah, I could definitely um, work on that myself. Um, what challenges does the Hispanic community have when seeking medical care? Um, I believe that's a community that you're pretty familiar with. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, I grew up in Texas, so I grew up speaking Spanish, and I grew up with a lot of the issues that are um, so relevant um, to individuals from all over the world. But one of the things I can say, having lived in other countries, I lived in Thailand, I've lived in Korea, I've lived in Germany. And uh, really, basically, I like to say I'm a, a citizen of the world. But um, the, the Hispanic community um, is, is very, very unique in that there, are, uh, there is a lot of mistrust um, for providers, but yet uh, the patients are really wanting to um, to get care. So part of what we have to do is try and determine what their preferences are and what their health care be beliefs are. And that's really true, not just for Hispanic patients, but for, for anyone, you know, that, that comes to us from a different country. 
um, we have pockets of patients in America that perhaps may have their own uh, set of healthcare beliefs and their own set of norms. But with Hispanics, one of the things that we want to do is to really try early on to establish rapport with them, as with any patient, to try and speak to them in Spanish, if possible, to try and address what their concerns and their fears are and what what they choose uh, to believe regarding their either their illness or medications that that need to be taken. And, and I think that it's very, very important for us to be respectful. There's, there's a term in Spanish called respeto and also familismo, which means be aware and, uh, of their family and what their concerns are there. And, and also try and, and figure out how best to provide education to them. So for instance, some of my patients um, are very tech-savvy and others are not. One of the things I can tell you about the Hispanic patients that I talk to here anyway, um, they all have cell phones. They all have smartphones. They love YouTube videos, and um, they know how to search for YouTube videos. And so sometimes uh, trying to find the appropriate uh, message for them is is a way to be able to reach out to them. But I think the other thing, too, is that um, the respect that, that we try and provide is really of just very, very paramount in providing care. Yeah, that was really great. Um, I love how you mentioned, like, the YouTube videos and uh, strategies to really meet patients where they are. And um, I just wanted to echo, I think it's so important that um, healthcare providers um, try to utilize resources to talk to patients in their native language. I think it makes a big difference with adherence and making the patient comfortable. So I'm glad that you made that point. Absolutely. And a lot, I have a whole set of patient education materials that are in English and in Spanish. And, um, and, but part of what we need to find out is whether or not the person is able to actually read, read that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's part of the, uh, the care that, that we provide. Um, the other thing is, um, helping them access, uh, things that they need, for instance, um, medications and do they need the help of someone else to, to help with that? The other thing we need to do is to look beyond our pharmacist hat and look at what needs to be done for a patient. So I can tell you that I had a patient that was referred to me this week that really needed help with nutrition. Now, I am not a dietitian. I'm a pharmacist, but I'm a certified diabetes care and education specialist. So with that um, and being able to be, uh, attain that certification, part of what we've had to learn is um, how to be fluent in um, appropriate nutritional stra strategies to be able to help manage diabetes and its comorbidities. And sometimes it goes beyond just trying to recommend the right food 
just as patients are very, very um, particular about a particular medication, if they choose or choose not to take it, they're the same way with foods, as are all human beings. So trying to figure out what it is that they are doing to begin with and and then trying to find ways to make some of these um, healthy choices, nutritional choices, be available to them is important. So I had this patient and um, 81 and has a sweet tooth. And as many of us do. Yeah, I can definitely empathize with that. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so in trying to work with the family, part of what we ended up doing was like, okay, how about doing something like Meals on Wheels for this individual? So again, um, this was something that um, that we're setting up for this individual to at least be able to try and have at least one one nutritious meal per day that may be more compatible with with the diabetes. So we have to stretch beyond that that realm of pharmacy and meds itself. And because you mentioned that you work with an underserved population, Can you talk about some of the unique challenges that they have um, to healthy eating, like um, access and those sorts of things? Sure. Access is is a big issue. And so a lot of what we do is also try and uh, help patients connect with things like the food bank, for instance, um, and, um, and also try and come up with choices that are um, healthy but culturally appropriate and uh, trying to to do that in a manner that is that they feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's really great. Um, I guess we will move on to how can a pharmacist develop cultural competency? Boy, that's a load, loaded question. And I think part of it is um, it's like an, an area of practice that a pharmacist is going to actually be involved with. When we are so well trained at the at the end of our degree program and at the end of residency, but then where we work and what areas of, um, for instance, medical care we encounter are going to really shape our knowledge base. So along with that, I think we have to do our homework there, but we also have to do our homework in terms of trying to read and experience things about uh, cultural competency. Um, There can be courses, for instance, that are available for a pharmacist to be able to do that. I think word of mouth for a pharmacist to work with somebody else, another healthcare provider that works with a particular group of individuals is really important to be able to shadow them, even though we've completed our training, but to shadow them and to actually talk to them and engage in a dialogue that makes uh, the information relevant so that we ourselves can can become a little bit more culturally competent. The other thing I always say is let your patients teach you. And I think it's very, very important that that we learn from each other and that we we learn from from our patients. And um, I think always it's important to ask permission. For instance, 
Um, if I'm going to talk to a patient about their medications, I will ask them, okay, now, is it okay if we talk about your medications? Is that all right? Or is it okay if we talk about your labs? Or is it okay if we talk about some of the foods that you eat? Or is it okay if we talk about um, perhaps physical activity that, that you may be engaged in? So I, I think, again, it goes back to respect for a different culture. And having lived overseas, that was something that was very, that, that I, I learned um, in, in my youth that we have to be uh, conscious of the people that we are working with and try and be respectful of their beliefs and learn about their, their beliefs. A pharmacist has a great opportunity to continue learning. That's part of what makes pharmacy exciting and never boring because there's always something new, something new to learn. And so we need to be lifelong learners and lifelong observers of, of what is going on. Yeah, I love your point about the um, continuing education because um, in school we hear a lot that getting your PharmD degree is just the beginning. Absolutely. If you want to be a competent clinician, you, you have to make learning a lifelong commitment. Absolutely. Like, for instance, when I graduated from uh, PharmD, PharmD program, we had one type, a couple of types of insulin and sulfonylureas. Okay, those were the two classes of meds that were available to treat diabetes. Never mind all of the wonderful meds that are available now, like the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 analogs and um, a lot of the other, other things that are available, the glitazones and other things that are out there as well. So um, we have to continue learning about these things to be able to provide good care to our patients. Yeah, that's really great. And then I wanted to share just a really brief story on respect, like you mentioned. Um, so I work in a hospital setting, and most of what I do as an intern is um, MedRex. So we go into patients' rooms and we ask them what medications they were taking um, outside of the hospital. And a big point that they made during our first day of training is that you need to knock on the door, right? And I think there's just like a lot of small things like that that clinicians can do to show respect because you wouldn't just barge into someone's house. So you shouldn't be barging into a hospital room either. Exactly. And, and for instance, in the Hispanic community, besides that, addressing persons individually as Mr. or Mrs. rather than by their first names, I think is um, very, very important um, in, in other cultures that, that may also be, be the case. And uh, so we have to learn what some of those preferences are for, for our patients. Yeah, that's really great. Well, it sounds like you're involved in so many things. So that leads us into how do you decompress? That's a great question. I think, first of all, it's important for pharmacists to be able to have avenues to decompress. Um, so there's a lot of things that I like to do. I love to read. Um, I love movies. I love the theater. I love walks. I love exercise. 
I love socializing with my family and with my friends. And um, so, um, and in the past, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to travel. And so I've had great opportunities to be able to do this. There is one organization called the International Pharmaceutical Federation, which is an international um, organization comprised of pharmacists from all over the world. And they have a meeting once a year, usually in a great place, a different country. And that is the place to have a conference. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes. And they, and you can go to their meetings and get continuing education credit and then also take some, some tours of what, whatever city or country you're in to see some of the local pharmacies and local places to see how pharmacists practice. But for instance, I've been lucky enough to be able to travel to China to do a presentation, and that's how I first found out about them. And I've traveled to Turkey and to India and to Ireland and to Germany and to Scotland, and um, it's it's a great, great organization. And um, they're, they're, what's interesting about going to one of those meetings is you go there and then you find out Okay, so here are all of the representatives from APHA mm-hmm. and also ASHP and AACP and ACCP. Yep. All of the all of the four letter, if you will, pharmacy um, organization abbreviations. So you find out that uh, pharmacy is a very global global profession. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the podcast, we've had the privilege of having guests that have um, experience being um, pharmacists overseas. Um, can you talk a little more about some of the differences that you've noticed between practice in the U.S. versus some of the other countries that you've been to? Well, um, and you know, I'm I'm really not an expert in that area because when I go to one of those meetings, you get a little bit of a bird's eye view of, of what they're doing. But for instance, I can tell you that a few years back when I attended the FIP meeting in, in Turkey, uh, one of the interesting things about this was that at that time, uh, pharmacists in other countries were not uh, actually providing immunizations. And the pharmacists at that meeting were very nervous about the possibility of having to do that. And uh, so now it's it's a more globally accepted um, uh, aspect of pharmacy practice, and so I feel like that was something that um, that was really good in terms of uh, American pharmacists being able to provide some of the training and also trying to help um, provide uh, reassurance to to pharmacists in other countries that this is something that they that they will learn and that uh, and and now it's just such a, a common part of uh, pharmacy practice in this country. Um, also in other countries, one of the things I can tell you is that there is depending on which country it is, there may be a big, big emphasis on um, natural product drugs and herbal supplements. 
And um, so that is often true, for instance, in, in Asia and other parts of the world. So that becomes a, a big part of learning about some of these products because in some countries that is mostly what patients may have access to, especially in, in rural areas. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, thank you for sharing those experiences with us. Um, and over the course of your career, how have you seen the role of pharmacists evolve? Okay. And, and the thing is, um, I mentioned immunizations, for instance. Yeah, that's a big one. That is a big one. And one of the things I can tell you is that in the 90s, um, I would have uh, a group of students where we would be invited to go to some sort of an immunization clinic, but we still were not trained. We still were not providing immunizations. And sometimes some of the other healthcare providers there wondered, well, what are you doing here? And it's like, we're here to help. We're here to help people sign up. Uh, we're here with to help with um, information that people may have, and and yet by the late '90s, this became uh, standard of practice to be able to be trained in in immunization delivery. The other thing too is that the role of technology has just really just skyrocketed. Oh yeah. Did you ever think you would be a telehealth pharmacist? I didn't. And I'll have another story about that in just a bit. But one of the things I can tell you is that um, in the world of diabetes, there is so much technology that is evolving at warp speed. But with things like the continuous glucose monitoring devices and also a, a lot of the different um, uh, insulin pumps and other um, types of equipment that are available to provide care for, for patients. It's just really very, very um, wonderful that there is this advancement in, in practice. And um, the other thing, too, is that um, in terms of providing, um, for instance, drug information, and being able to retrieve information quickly to be able to provide that to, for instance, um, co-workers, um, other healthcare professions. It has just become very, you know, just wonderful to be able to, to do this. So we continue to learn and grow, and that's why we have to be those lifelong learners that are excited by the process. Yeah, it was really cool to hear that juxtaposition um, of you going to vaccine clinics in the 90s versus now, because now we have um, students at the College of Pharmacy that put on their own immunization clinics and were able to do that. That's really cool. All right. Now I'm dying to hear your telehealth story. My telehealth story that actually comes to one of the things that I am proud of. Okay. Um in 2011, I actually became involved with a remote patient monitoring program. And it was a grant that actually was provided to, um, to the Utah Telehealth Network. 
And because I work with the community health centers, there was an opportunity to work with UTN to be able to um, provide uh, some of these early telehealth experiences that were in the the form of remote patient monitoring. So uh, one of the things that we did, I became the um, the coordinator for the remote patient monitoring uh, project. And so what this was, was to be able to engage patients, sign up uh, patients for uh, this telemonitoring program or telehealth program. And it was by um, trying to develop a patient education program for them um, in English y en español for uh, diabetes and also hypertension. And uh, so some of these patients um, actually were chosen to um, have a, uh, a little computer placed in their home. So it required training of the patient to be able to have this device in their home. And one of the things that I was able to do was to program different education messages. So what I did was I used the uh, the template of the, uh, it, it was then called the American Association of Diabetes Educators. And um, there are uh, different uh, basic in uh, education messages. So I programmed these into the devices in English and in Spanish, and every week the patient would get a message, a set of messages, and there was a common theme of the week. And so then after eight weeks, that um, these messages repeated three times so that they were involved in the program for a total of approximately six months. And we monitored their clinical outcomes. We looked at baseline hemoglobin A1C, their baseline blood pressures, their baseline lipids, and um, a lot of their weight as well. And so we wanted to see whether or not that computer device or an alternate device, which was a phone call through and provided information through automated response systems to the patients, again, in English and in Spanish. And we wanted to see whether or not there were, this might make an impact on clinical outcomes. Well, I can tell you that at the end of the program, a few years later, um, the hemoglobin A1C had gone down by 2.1%, which was wow. statistically significant. And they were yeah. all really great outcomes. So we were able to publish three different papers in, in journals regarding this. And actually, um, the, uh, the one specifically just with um, patients um, at the community health centers here in Utah, it actually won a clinical research award through APHA. This was a national clinical research uh, award. So that was really kind of fun. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really good example of how pharmacists can get involved in clinical research. Because mm -hmm. I think so often we just think about wet labs. Mm -hmm. But that's a really great example. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, do you see 
Well, do you think there will be more opportunities for pharmacists in telehealth? Oh, there are. Absolutely. Um, The market is full of pharmacists that are actually involved in telehealth. And, And I guess I'm aware of that because of being a certified diabetes care and education specialist. So I see this this network of pharmacists that are involved with this all over the United States. And um, so many of them are also members of a different organization called the um, ADCES, which is the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. And this is comprised of um, people from different professions. And uh, so uh, there's very, very strong um, telehealth technology listservs and and continuing education programs and communications and updates. And so pharmacists are really um, being able to be at the core of a lot of these these different types of, of technologies. Yes. Yeah, that's great. And you were really on the cutting edge with that. Yeah, I I had no idea that. uh, And and really what empowered all of this was COVID. You know, that's Mm -hmm. what ended up um, really making this something that that would be possible. Because prior to COVID, I worked uh, in person. And then, of course, during COVID, we worked through through telehealth. And, um, and then I'm, I'm lucky that I'm still able to do that. My, my own circumstances are such that with my family needs, I'm, I'm able to provide this as, as a service to patients. Yeah, that's great. Um, so what qualities would you say make a good pharmacist? I think the, the best thing is that pharmacists are curious people and, they love to learn, and they're interested in finding out how things work from a pharmacologic and therapeutic standpoint. Um, I think also the fact that they're willing to just step out of their comfort zone and be able to learn new things and just go into the unknown, I think that those things make a a great pharmacist. Yeah, those are some really important qualities. And then what is one thing you wish the public knew about pharmacists? I wish the public knew that we do more than work in traditional uh, community practice settings. Not that there is anything wrong with that. I have done that too, and that is a great way to be able to provide patient education and care. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes the the public doesn't realize that uh, pharmacists can have very specialized, very unique jobs like in drug information, for instance, or involved in critical care or involved with... Um, emergency department care or specialty services in rehab, for instance, or long-term care or oncology or um, many, many different areas of, of uh, practice. Yeah, that's a really good point. And part of the reason why we started the podcast was just to shed light on some of the less well-known areas of pharmacy. Um, community pharmacists do very important work, but I think there's um, a lot of people out there that aren't aware that there are 
pharmacists in the hospital that are following their case as well, for instance. And of course, um, people like you that are involved in some of the ambulatory care work that pharmacists do. Um, and I guess we will move on to what advice can you give to someone interested in pursuing a career in pharmacy? I think the best advice I can give them is to be welcoming to both challenges and opportunities and realize that sometimes we have to really um, um, be uncomfortable with our knowledge base, which means that we need to learn more and that we have to be willing to learn. And whenever there is a new product, a new drug, that especially in our area of practice, that we need to do our darndest to be able to learn all we can about, about that particular product. I think also we need to, as I mentioned earlier, we need to learn from our patients. And we also need to learn from other healthcare professionals and, and try and see things and learn things from their perspective. Uh, for instance, I had the opportunity to work with an interprofessional team in geriatrics for my residency, and I learned so much from the physical therapists. I learned a lot from the dietitians, from nursing, from the social workers, as well as um, the physicians and other pharmacists that were involved with patient care. So we need to really be able to embrace what other people do and try and see if we can glean some bits of, of wisdom from um, learning from them in terms of uh, transferring that to our patients. Was the idea of having that large of an interdisciplinary team um, new at the time that you did your residency? It was not. And you know, what's interesting is that um, many people think now that interprofessional care is a new thing. It is not. I'm talking about training way back in the dark ages. <laughs> and that was, that was part of our training where uh, certainly we, um, we did rounds together, but we, uh, twice a week we had these interprofessional rounds. And um, so learning about each of the patients on our service from each one of those disciplines was really very, very um, useful. The other thing is that I can tell you that we uh, certainly try and train our students to um, be involved with interprofessional care. Some of our student-run clinics are managed in that manner. Uh, I can tell you that I'm involved with something else called the uh, diabetes education program that consists of an interprofessional group of students, um, pharmacy students, also nutrition students, also physical therapy students, also occupational therapy students, also dental students. And we provide education via Zoom to patients from an underserved clinic every couple of weeks, and we do this in Spanish, but with translators also. And um, so this is, this is something that also uh, we think benefits the patient, seeing all of the different perspectives that are, that are provided for their care. 
Yeah, that's a really cool. And that's a really fun perspective to have from back in the dark ages. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I think that brings us to the budding question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think we hit on this yet, but um, Dr. Shane McWhorter um, teaches uh, an herbal supplements class here at the college. So could you tell us a little more about that and are herbal supplements effective? Okay, that's that's also a loaded question. Yes. <laughs> um, herbal supplements are often preferred by patients. And I mentioned that in other parts of the world, that's standard of care. Um, I think that many uh, of the products actually do have beneficial therapeutic effects. However, they are not quite as effective as traditional medicine. So um, that leads to the idea of complementary, complementary with an E, if you will, mm -hmm. not with an I, complementary, which means in addition to. And so um, sometimes patients want to, want to do this. Um, how did I get involved with this? This was not something I had training in at University of Utah, but um, in my practice with family practice physicians, they would uh, ask me about an herbal product or a natural product. And at first we would say things like, well, let's just have our patients not take this. But that was not the case. Patients use this. So, so I started... Um, researching and learning about different products. And that became lists. And then that became handouts. And then that became um, different uh, ed education programs. And that became manuscripts. And finally, it led to three different books that are published by the American Diabetes Association on uh, supplements for diabetes and its co comorbidities. And so that's something that I've been involved with. And so uh, uh, ADA actually had asked me to do different presentations at their national programs. And so I did. And that's why that led to writing books that were published by the, the ADA that I, that I wrote. Um, the last one was just published a couple of, of years ago, and it's a labor of love. And uh, the, the thing is that uh, trying to provide evidence-based information is, is my approach to this while being respectful of, of patients. And there are many patients that I will say, it's okay to use this product, whereas there are certain products where I'll say, you know what, this is not something that I think um, can be used safely. And in the meantime, if patients want to use the product, we want to keep an eye on their on their liver function, their renal function, and whatever um, clinical outcomes they are using it for. For instance, if they're using it for diabetes, let's keep an eye on your glucose and your blood pressure and, and other such things. So um, I think some are effective, but not quite as effective as as traditional medicines. And one of the things I often say to my patients who are Hispanic and are so afraid of insulin. Mm -hmm. They're very and it's not the injections, it's the insulin that they're worried about and I explain to them that this is the most natural product that can be used because this is something 
that our bodies produce. And in the diabetes state, it's either not being produced or not sufficient amounts are being produced. And um, I do the same thing, for instance, with metformin, because metformin is a biguanide, and the biguanides are actually related to a product called Galega officinalis. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell patients that are reluctant to start a medication, okay, this product is, is very similar to this natural product, and there's a lot of benefits. And so just trying to, to use from an evidence-based perspective information to be able to help patients. Um, so they are effective, but not quite as effective as traditional medicines. Yeah, that's a great caveat to have. Well, you are such a great example of career-long learning. That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for um, joining us. Uh, do you have any last parting words? I say go pharmacy and go youths. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sierra. This is the Farm Buds signing off. Until next time. Stay curious. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Farm Buds podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the University of Utah. Farm Buds is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any information contained in this series. This podcast does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. The primary purpose of this show is to educate, inform, and allow those in the pharmacy profession to tell their stories.